It is uh, like a grand finale here, so much richness all culminating in this final section, like a great story or a great movie or a great drama, building, building, building. Ephesians builds and builds and builds, and, and here we see the battle lines drawn. We all love to go to a, a, a movie and, and have that great climactic moment, that great climactic scene, but I want to encourage you, Jubilee, that we have something better this morning than Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. This is much greater. Why? It's not fiction. It's not fantasy. This is reality. Not make-believe. It is real. It is certain. It's not about a character in a galaxy far, far away. It's about you and I and our lives and our future. It's the final fight. It's the true battle. The most important battle any of us will fight and all of us will fight it. It's absolutely real. The stakes are life and death. The stakes are eternal. They are personal. This is the ultimate fight. The world is filled with stories. Everyone loves stories. And movie after movie has battle after battle. But every one of those stories is like a dim porch light when the sun comes up and shines in full strength. The light of God's Word to see the true battle, the true call, this final exhortation and charge given by the Apostle Paul, who's worked so hard under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to lay out this great book of Ephesians. And now he's given us a charge that he's going to repeat, and he's going to repeat, and he's going to repeat. And the weight of it must sink in this morning. We're going to see this charge, and then we're going to see how we are to dress for battle. A charge and how we are to dress for battle. But let's go back before we get into 13, 14, and 15, back up to 10, just by way of reminder where we've been. We heard in the last sermon two weeks ago when Pastor Lou preached, he mentioned that this section begins with the word finally. And, you know, it's always funny when when a pastor is away, and then another pastor starts speaking about how uh, words like finally are used, and finally doesn't always mean finally, and sometimes pastors can say finally, but then they go on and on and on. So it's kind of funny, kind of a passive-aggressive thing when Lou mentions that about another pastor when he's not here. But Pastor Lou, I just want to say that I think Pastor Dan will forgive you. I don't think he minds that when you speak about finally like that, I know you're talking about him, so it's all love from him for you. Verse 10, some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's all right, don't worry. Once in a while we say finally and we don't actually mean finally. As Pastor Lou mentioned, the book is filled with a few finalies. This is the last finally, though, in the book. Verse 10, finally, finally what? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. He uh, pointed out such an important point here that the call here in verse 10 is not be strong enough. No, the, the, the call here is finally be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So it is a receiving strength here that he begins with. But he begins with this need that we have to be strengthened. Strengthened from whom? From the Lord, from the Lord Jesus. We need the, the Lord Jesus' strength. And so he's about to talk about battle. He's a talk, about to talk about serious enemies. But he begins with Jesus here. Because Jesus is the captain of the army. Jesus is the king leading the fight. 
And we must know as we wake up day by day by day, we are in a fight. We are absolutely in a fight. So the first thing we have to do is recognize we're in a fight. And the first need we have in that fight is, verse 10, that we would be strengthened. For our strength runs out, but we would be strengthened day by day. This is of first importance that we start here in this book. We start here in communion with our Father. This is a battle that we cannot fight in our own strength. We will fall away. We will stop following Jesus. We will fall into temptation. We will leave our community. We will leave our commitments in our own strength. So he says, finally, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's all the strength flows from Jesus. Verse 11, very briefly, just by way of reminder, go through these first three verses. Put on the whole armor of God. This is a summary for where we're going. What are we to do? Put on the whole armor of God. We want to look at what that does. Why do we put on the whole armor of God? There's a that. There's a purpose there. Why do we put on the whole armor of God? Read the middle of verse 11 with me. Put on the whole armor of God that... Let's read together. One more time. Put on the whole armor of God... We've got to say it one more time. This time we're going to really, really say it to one another like we mean it. Jubilee, put on the whole armor of God... So this is the first time we see the word stand out of four times he's going to say it here in these verses. He's going to say it, and he's going to say it, and he's going to say it, and he's going to say it, which means it's really important, right? And, and, and he doesn't say it for no reason. Stand here. He's been talking, walk, 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 the whole book, and now he says stand, and we've got to recognize, and we've got to think, and we've got to consider that there is a significant likelihood that we would fail to stand, and we got to think through what that looks like. But we put on the armor. Why? That we may be able to stand. We may be able to stand against what? Against schemes, against deceitful plans to destroy you and I, to undercut our faith, to undo our commitment, to lead us astray. And we see here that the devil, the enemy of our soul, who we know is a liar and the father of lies, we know his game plan, we know his desire is to steal, kill, and destroy from you. And so we put on the armor day by day. We are strengthened in the Lord that we might be able to stand against these schemes. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our fight is not against other people, mainly. Okay? Sometimes we get into it with someone and there's, there's, a, there's a tiff there. But what he's saying here is there's a bigger thing going on. It's not mainly a physical fight, not mainly a relational fight, spiritual fight. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against four things. What are they? Against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What does all that mean? It means that Satan and his hosts have all kinds of servants and minions working against Jesus and his people. It means that Satan has been given a measure of authority in this world right now to be called the small g God of this world. Paul's talked about this earlier in Ephesians. If you remember back in Ephesians 2, he says that apart from Christ, all of us, are 
walking as sons of disobedience, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work among all unbelievers everywhere. There is a massive anti-Christ conspiracy going on in the world. It's rooted in these spiritual forces and powers. So this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Living for Jesus is not going to be easy ever at any time for anyone. We don't wrestle against a person. Our, our fight is much bigger than that. And so our need for Jesus is much bigger. One more important thing to note from verse 12. The second word of the verse is exceedingly important. See it there? For, what's the second word? For what? We. 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 When we talk about this battle and we talk about this fight, we're talking we language here. We are fighting together. Each one using our gifts in different ways, helping one another to fight. I was meeting for a moment with those that are joining as, as new members this morning, and Carolyn Schmitter asked a great question. Carolyn, where are you? Somewhere here. Hey, there she is. She said, is, 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 how does spiritual warfare relate with membership? Great question. We said, you know, Satan is opposed to anything good that we want to give ourselves to. And how does a lion want to hunt? Wants to get that old animal isolated out from the herd, right? And what do we need? We need one another. We need to do life together. And so we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not living as individuals, as was said earlier, but we are in a battle for faith, for our families, with our friends. You look around and you see every person in this room is in a battle individually. And every person in this room, we hope, is in a battle together against all of these powers. This language of power is especially powerful when you think about Paul speaking to the Ephesians. And Ephesians, if you remember Ephesus from way back at the beginning, had the, one of the wonders of this world, the great temple to Artemis. And, and there was all kinds of false worship happening there. And, and, and so he's speaking language that really resonated with the Ephesians. They understood spiritual power and spiritual fight. And so he said in 2 Corinthians, the same kind of thing, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So we, like Peter, are not to grab swords and fight, grab guns and, and convert people. That's not. No, what do we do? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's our fight. It's a fight of truth. It's a fight of ideas. It's a fight of faith. It's a fight of belief. So there's a, a, a sense here when we hear rulers, authorities, overwhelming. It's just, yeah, and yet we are not alone. It starts with verse 10. Be strengthened in the Lord. Be strengthened in King Jesus. Be strengthened in the one who is victor, who is King of kings, who is Lord of lords, who will reign forever and ever. Amen? Be strengthened in the Lord. Might. We might have to sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God at the end of this. I don't know because it has this great battle language, right? Remember one of the verses, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? 
dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same, and He must fight. And yet we are always looking to Jesus, understanding that Jesus has finished the race, won the fight, and yet we are still in it. Now, our text, verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So we saw it in verse 11, that call to take up something, put on something, so that why? So that we can stand. And here now we hear the same thing repeated again. And so this is the first of three times right here in 13 and 14 that we're going to hear the call to stand. And so this first time that he says to stand, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So we want to figure out, okay, what does it look like to take up that armor? We're going to get there. But we take it up, why? That we may be able to withstand in the evil day. Think about the word withstand. What do you have to withstand? Sometimes you have to withstand stress. Sometimes you have to withstand opposition. Sometimes you have to withstand persecution. Right? But when you withstand something, you're standing in such a way not to be swept away, not to be knocked down, not to be knocked back. And so this is the picture here. Why must we take up this armor? So that we can withstand. What would threaten us as we seek to withstand? All kinds of things. But he says, take it up that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What is the evil day? See that there in verse 13? That you may be able to withstand it in the evil day. Well, certainly there is a day coming that will be evil that will be difficult. Things will get harder and harder according to what the Bible tells us. There is a future reality, but there's also a very present reality. That evil day comes when temptation comes on you like a lion. That evil day comes when your heart begins to get hardened more and more. That evil day comes when your apathy for this grows and your seeing God diminishes, and your heart begins to grow colder and colder, and you care less and less about these things. He's saying, take up that armor that you may be able to whistle day all of these different attacks. Stand, stand, stand. You say, Pastor, what, what do we need to stand against? Well, maybe for some that we need to stand against discontentment. I know that in my heart, discontentment loves to worm its way in like a weed, loves to come in and question the voice of God with the voice of saying, lying as he has from the beginning might be questioning, does God really love you? Boy, we've heard that over and over, and yet if we're honest, we know in our hearts we can begin to believe the lie that God doesn't actually love you. Or we might believe the lie that God doesn't actually want our best. God doesn't want us to be happy. Think about the temptation of Jesus. When Jesus was tempted, Satan was, was, was going after him. What happened right before Jesus was tempted? Jesus was baptized. In Jesus' baptism, the Father said one thing. 
You remember what he said? He said, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Immediately in the temptation, how did Satan come after Jesus? Are you really God's son? If you're really God's son, then dot, 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 dot. He comes after his core identity. He tries to stir up discontentment. He tries to stir up questions. If you're really God's son, why is life this way? Why don't you have food to eat? Why, why don't you have greater power? Why don't you have more of a following? And that temptation comes into our hearts. If you were really God's beloved daughter, son, wouldn't life have worked out better for you? Would you really have had to walk through that trial if you're really God's son? And so we say, okay, let us take up the armor of God that we may be able to withstand that kind of evil day, that discontentment that would stir up. How else might we need to stand? Well, as I said, Paul repeats himself here. So he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That's the first time in verse 13. But then he says it again. And having done all to stand firm. So clearly in his mind, even though he's, he said it in verse 11, so now this is the third time he said it, there is something in his mind that's very important. This call to stand. What is it that we must stand against? Well, one of the most obvious things we must stand against is temptation, right? For as Satan attacks our identity, he seeks to lead us into temptation. And it comes in various forms and various strengths and various ways, but the enemy of our soul knows how each of us are bent, knows what would lead each of us astray. For some, it might be anger. So we're, we're talking about that in anger class. For others, it might be lust. For others, it might be laziness. For others, it might be greed. But you think how many, think about this, how many pastors, how many ministries have been destroyed even in the last few years because of these things run away in these ones who are to be spiritual leaders. Because one person failed to stand firm, a whole bunch of, of damage is done to so many. How does this happen? A little bit here, a little bit there, a little compromise here, a little hardening of the heart here. No deal, right? We just get comfortable with sin. Big deal. So I was reminded of this two weeks ago. I was at our house, and uh, your imperfect pastor struggles in many ways, but one of the ways is uh, I was a little frustrated with our, uh, our children with the state of our house, all right? And so I was hoping that it would be clean, and I, I didn't handle it in the most sanctified way, getting after them a little bit and, and just not doing it in the best way. And I got up to my room and huffing and puffing, and, and, uh, but, but they're believe in a little bit of a lie there that, you know what, I, I should have done that. That's good. Should have done that, right? And I, I open up my computer and I get an email that says, you mad, bro? <laughs> well, I didn't look very carefully to see who it's from, but I assumed immediately it was from one of my kids. And uh, scroll down and there's this little Pixar picture of this angry guy and Quotes Ephesians 4.26, don't let the sun go down in your anger. And, you know, he's like, well, what are you doing? Uh, don't say. And then immediately God begins to work. And, all right, I'm going to go talk to my kids. And then look a little more carefully at this email. I wonder which one sent it to me. And I go down and 
Oh, oh, invitation to anger class from Jubilee Community Church. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Toph. But God used the timing, that point, just to say, don't get comfortable. Don't let it be okay. And this is where I would press in Jubilee. So he calls us to stand firm a second time. Just been thinking about this. Was exhorted by a brother a couple weeks ago on this point, and that just it's just resonated with me and stayed there. Jubilee, we must not let a hint of sin take up residence and take root and be comfortable with in our hearts. We cannot nurture our little pet sin. It is so easy to let this do, to let this go. Brother, sister, what is the little area of sin that seemed little, so insignificant? that you're giving way to. You're just saying, no big deal. It's just a show. It's just a whatever. No big deal. You find yourself cuddling sin. You find yourself feeding your little secret stash. Jubilee, we cannot play games with sin. Psalm 66 said, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So my friend asked this question, two weeks ago, how can I say that I love the Lord with all my heart and soul and mind if I harbor a special spot in my heart for a secret sin? He continued, help me, Lord Jesus, to surrender all. Jubilee, this must be our prayer, right? This must be the way we fight. The enemy of our soul would say, it's little, no big deal, just let it be. You got to have some little pleasure in your life, so just no, no, no. Think of many analogies of things that start small and get out of hand, but some of you know that my wife is a gifted mouse hunter, and she has found in living in big old houses with all kinds of holes and empty walls for many years that mice love to come. And as soon as they come, they love the vision of spread. They love to multiply, they love to expand, and they love to take over territory. So... She has become a ninja, a samurai warrior of attacking mice in every way. And she knows if you let one, if you let two come in, pretty soon you have a whole bunch. But it's the same way with sin. It's all the worse with sin. And so a second time he said, and then when we go from verse 13 to verse 14, first two words, says it again for a fourth time. Stand Therefore, stand therefore. What does it look like to not stand? In the book of Hebrews, not standing is called shrinking back. Hebrews says it like this, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back, Hebrews 10.39, and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Standing or shrinking back is the difference between being destroyed and being saved, right? This is our eternal battle. This is our eternal fight. And so he says now this fourth time, stand. Stand on solid theology. Don't compromise don't give way. We're talking about American gospel this week because the gospel is always under attack, and it is perverted in our country and around the world in so many different ways. Stand, therefore, when you think about ethics, 
Issues of gender we weren't even thinking about 10 years ago. Now we must think about and we must stand. And for some of us, it's going to cost us our jobs. Certainly going to cost friendships, and it already has. Stand, therefore, instead of quitting. Oh, the temptation will come to quit. To quit on Jesus. To quit on your marriage. To quit on church membership. To quit on parenting. How do we make these covenants? Because it's too easy to quit and we need to help one another to stand therefore. And we see it again and again in the Bible. One who starts well but then falls off. Or we see it in ones like Peter. Oh, Jesus, I'm going to stand. And he doesn't. And yet Jesus restores him. And we see it in the last book of the Bible. Turn with me briefly there. I just want to see this one more time, this call to stand before we look at the armor. Go to Revelation chapter 2 and see the call at the end of every one of the seven letters that Jesus speaks to the churches. The last thing he says to each church is a call to stand or a call to conquer. Chapter 2, verse 7 to the one who conquers. The end of the letter to the church of Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 11, the one who conquers. Chapter 2, verse 17, to the one who conquers. Chapter 2, verse 25 and 26, only hold fast what you have until I come to the one who conquers and keeps my work. Chapter 3, verse 5, to the one who conquers, and each one is given a different promise that, that he will give. And so it is with the sixth church. And then the seventh church, verse 21, the one who conquers. What should we take from this? That it is absolutely not to be assumed that we will conquer, either as an individual or as a church. But Jesus is calling us in heat of the battle on Stand firm, be strengthened in me day by day that you might be able to withstand in the evil day. One more place to see in Revelation and then we turn to the armor. Go to Revelation 21. The last place this word stand or conquer is coming at the end of the story. First eight verses of Revelation 21 Apostle John seeing this great picture, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
Now hear this climactic statement, verse 7. The one who conquers, that is, the one who stands firm, will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jubilee just didn't love to not people, tell people the truth about what is to come. Around us, our extended family, your free lives of all kind of form of immorality. We just have to be reminded of what's true that there are those who are eagerly awaiting King Jesus, and there's everybody else. His first coming was mercy, his second coming. And so he calls us, and he says, stand firm, stand firm. Back to Ephesians 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Verse 13 again, and having done all to stand firm. And verse 14, stand therefore. What a call. What a call. I invite you in your missional life groups this week to just talk about this word stand. Why is this repeated for us? And what are the pressures we most feel? What are the the opposition we most feel that would prevent us, keep us from standing? And just as we've seen this call to stand over and over, now we're going to see a a call to put on the armor over and over. And there are six pieces of this armor. This morning, we're just going to get three of them and we will be done. But each one of them is significant. Each one of them is, 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 is significant and powerful. And we, we begin in verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened. And as you look and you see that word having, it's the same word for the next piece of armor. It's the same word for the next piece of armor. There's this present ongoing activity. It's something that we've done already, but we keep doing. And so when we, we think about this armor of God, it is something we go on doing, right? Each day we've got to come and we've got to be reminded as we pray, God, help me by prayer to put on this armor. Help me in each piece to be reminded of what's true. And each, each piece is important. Each piece has its own role. And so we want to think about these six pieces to the armor, recognizing again that we are absolutely in a fight. One more thing about these pieces of armor. Each of them is an echo of something that was true of Jesus from the prophet Isaiah. So as Paul is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knows the book of Isaiah and he is pointing back to something that he saw of Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And as you you connect these dots, it's, it's pretty neat how these go. So the first stand, therefore, he says, having, what's the first piece of the armor? Having fastened on the belt of truth. First piece of armor, the belt of truth. All right, so what does this mean? What is the, the belt of truth? Well, each, each one of these pieces, we'll, we'll see it first in Isaiah, and then we'll think about it here. In Isaiah 11, it speaks of the coming Messiah, the coming Jesus, and it says there in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth 
a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. All of this pointing forward to King Jesus. And he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, we see in Revelation. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Isaiah 11, verse 5, key verse here for our point. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness, the belt of his loins. As the king arrays himself for battle, the first piece is the belt. The belt of righteousness, the belt of faithfulness. Here at Ephesians, it is the belt of truth. So what does it mean to put on the belt of truth as we pray, as we begin our day and say, I want to put on the belt of truth? To put on the belt of truth is to remind ourselves of what's true, right? Remind ourselves of what's true. We said earlier, our fight is not against people, it's against ideas, it's against unbelief, it's against false uh, notions that Satan would lead us to think about. And so the very first way we fight this battle is remind ourselves of what's true. And so we've got this very... Uh, this imagery, this visual to, to think about as we pray and we say, God, remind me, Father, remind me of what is true today. I want to put on your belt of truth. I want to stand in what you have revealed to be true. There's lots of things I don't have to question because I know they're true and I want to stand in what's true. And We begin our fight by minded of what's true. Not only is there a, 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 an attribute here that allows us to stand but there's also an attribute that allows us to live. So as we think about this whole book of Ephesians, there's been a lot it's had to say about the truth. So as we think about living life, what does it mean to live life with the belt of truth on? It means living our lives in truth, according to truth. So Ephesians 4 said, put off falsehood. Don't lie to one another. You are members of one another. You're in membership with one another. Therefore, tell the truth. So not only do we stand in truth, but we live in truth, right? This is the first piece of, we're to be people of truth, truth in our relations, truth in our workplaces, everywhere we go, we're to put on this belt of truth. First piece of armor is what? The belt of truth. First piece of armor is the? It's the belt of truth. Verse 14 continues, stand therefore having put on the belt of truth and second piece having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness, right? Not many of us wear breastplates. But if we're going into a sword fight and someone's coming at us with a sword, we're probably going to want a pretty solid breastplate, right? Well, in this battle, we absolutely need a breastplate. We need something to cover our front. And the breastplate of righteousness is so significant. And again, we want to think about it in, in two ways. The first way is as I start my day, and if you're like me, you wake up and, and you're not, yay, Jesus, I'm all about you today in my first thought. I got to get there, right? I got I to go there. But I put on that belt of truth reminding myself what's true. What's the second piece here? This breastplate of righteousness. And I'm reminded, you are reminded, we are reminded that if we're in Jesus, we stand 
as his righteous ones. The whole first chapter emphasized over and over we are in union with Jesus, so now he has given us his righteousness and we can wear it as a breastplate, right? Satan comes at us with all of his accusations, all of his pointing the finger of all of our guilt, and we say, I am wearing the breastplate of righteousness. I have righteousness that has been given from another, from the perfect one it has been given to me. Right? What does 2 Corinthians 5.21 say? Jesus, the righteous one, became unrighteous that we, the unrighteous, might become the righteousness of God. Right? He gives us his righteousness. Now we wear it as a breastplate. It is our armor that we put on. And again, there is a picture pointing back to Isaiah. And in Isaiah 59, speaking of the Savior who is to come, it says there in Isaiah 59, verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. It's like language we're reading right here. And so as Jesus wears a breastplate of righteousness, so he invites us to wear a breastplate of righteousness, so we stand that we are in the, in the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. But not only that, but now we go out into the world with this armor, and it's a call to live in righteousness. Not only have been, we been given a righteousness, but Ephesians has been working really hard, chapter 4, chapter 5, because of what Jesus has done, now we live in a new way. And what's that new way? It's to live a life according to righteousness, right? And say, I'm not going to give way to sin. I'm not going to compromise. It's saying, no, it's a call to live this new life. Put on the new man. Put on this new armor. Put on this new and holy life. And so we begin our morning saying, God, thank you for the righteousness you've given me. Help me to walk in your righteousness today. Help me put on this belt of truth. Help me to put on this breastplate of righteousness. And it's not, as Pastor Lou pointed to two weeks ago, this is not Saul's armor we're being called to put on. It's not some mismatched thing we got from the thrift store that doesn't fit. This is armor God has designed for us that we can put on. Mrs. Paulson, I am sorry because there are some excellent things at Hidden Treasures Thrift Store. I saw that look you gave your husband. And Judge Paulson, you have an awesome story and you do a great job. <laughs> Speaking of feet and mouth, the third piece of the armor speaks to our feet. He says, and third piece as shoes for your feet. What are we going to put on our feet? We're going to put on shoes. What are the shoes? The shoes are the readiness it's an interesting word. Why do we put on shoes of readiness? Shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. All right, so, so the, the shoes we're putting on day by day are shoes of readiness, and the readiness is flowing out from it. It's the fruit of the gospel of peace. So the gospel is good news for us, declares good news for us. And again, we go back to Isaiah and say, is there language? Yes, this is coming right out of Isaiah there too. And remember something in Isaiah that speaks of feet and what, what is going on with feet in Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That is, gospel news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who, who announces salvation, who says to God's people, your God reigns. So morning by morning, we put on first what? The belt of truth. Second, breastplate of righteousness. And third, 
the readiness, as shoes for our feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And this readiness, just like the others, we want to think about it in two forms. First one, it's the readiness to stand firm. We need solid footing. You know what it's like to live in Minnesota last month. There's all kinds of ice everywhere, and you need decent footwear to be able to not fall but to stand, right? And the last month is an absolute gift of spiritual analogy to think of what does it look like to follow Jesus and to know, my goodness, we can lose our footing in so many places, so many different ways. And so we need the shoes of readiness, the gospel reminding us of what's true and not true, and we stand firm in it. But not only do we stand, but we, like that one in Isaiah, go with the readiness to share and to preach and to declare good news. Our God reigns. Jesus has come. Repent and believe in Him. That was Jesus' ministry, and so it's to be ours. Does God work through that? He does. Caleb and I were talking this morning. He was at prayer meeting. He said, sorry, I missed. I was in New Orleans. We were doing ministry down at Mardi Gras, sharing the gospel down at Mardi Gras. And you think, man, that seems like an unlikely place to go share the gospel, right? But Caleb was sharing stories of God at work, God doing good things, and I had to tell him a story that was seemingly coincidental, obviously not in God's plan. But one of my dear friends was uh, partying, living for the world, living for drinking and chasing one woman after another, was at Mardi Gras partying it up, and there was a street preacher who spoke the gospel, declared the gospel. And all kind of other people, I'm sure, responded to this guy and said, get out of here, you're full of whatever. Kempton Turner heard the gospel and believed in the gospel at Mardi Gras as it was declared good news of God's salvation. He's now pastoring, planted an amazing church in East. He's preached here before, some of you know him. So it's shoes for our feet. We put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. We go into our classroom, we go into our office, we go into our neighborhood, and we just say, all right, God, today, give me a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Readiness to stand and a readiness to declare good news that Jesus has accomplished. So Jubilee, the call is again and again, stand firm, stand, stand, stand. And our prayer is that God would help us to stand until the end. And we stand as those who are putting on the armor. We'll see the next three next week. But we put on the belt of truth. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. And we put on the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. Finally, brief points of application. First, Jubilee, just a reminder, in this battle, it is hard, it is weighty. Every step of the way, we must look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus. The Jesus who it has been said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Amen? Every enemy is going to be put underneath His feet. So if you get worried about Russia or North Korea or terrorists or Democrats or Republicans or elections or all the noise, just be reminded, we know how this ends. And we want to give every blood, ounce of blood, every ounce of sweat, every tear, 
for the right cause, for the right purpose. And so we are daily reminding ourselves who the hero is, who the victor is. We're not the big deal. He's the big deal. He's the king. We are his slaves, his soldiers. And so we are looking to Jesus. Second reminder of application, we wrestle. Jubilee, we are going to live this out together. We are going to help one another finish the race. We, by God's grace, are going to go to one another's funerals one day and say, Joshua finished the race. He kept the faith. Or Joshua's going to go to my funeral. And do, right? We're going to do that for one another. We're going, to, we're going to keep the faith, finish the race. By God's grace, that's our hope. But we do it together. We do it in community. So we together gather Sunday by Sunday to glorify God and worship Him. We gather to grow in the Word of God and Sunday school, missional life groups, and then we go with those shoes of readiness. Just as a church together, on the same team, in the same battle, growing and going, older, investing in younger, investing in future men and future women, even little brand newborns, future fathers, future mothers. I don't know if you guys know, but Pastor Dan and Mrs. Porch got a great gift in the last two weeks. Previously, they'd not been grandparents. And then their sons and daughters-in-law raced to see who would be first. And Seth and Devin had their baby two weeks ago, whose name is Elliot. I like that name. Elliot Daniel, our grandson, with grandpa's name. And then Benjamin and Sarah this last week had their son. And in order to outdo their sibling, baby was born on Pastor Dan's birthday. Isn't that great? Like, all right, so which one's going to be favorite? Doesn't matter. They're both going to be favorite. But I've just been picturing and enjoying picturing Pastor Dan with those little boys on his knee, calling them to be men of God, calling them to look to Jesus, calling them what it will be to be husbands and fathers one day, what it will be to be disciples and disciple makers, and just thinking that's going to be pretty sweet. But that jubilee is our calling together, glorifying our God. We're growing in grace together, and we're seeking to go in all these different ways that God keeps doing around here that are so cool, all of it rooted in our union. Let me close with a little excerpt from this book, Tender Warrior, uh, God's Intention for a Man just thought this was helpful in thinking about standing and, and, and leaving. He asked the question, what does a healthy man look like? The author says, I can't help but recall a statement from a young guy who lives near us, a 16-year-old high school sophomore. His parents divorced when he was eight years old. His father left and never returned. His stepdad was a tyrannical and poor excuse for a man. He treats his stepson poorly, tells him to shut up all the time, tells him he's worthless and stupid and will never amount to anything. But just ask the boy about his dream and his eyes will light up and this is what he'll tell you. I'd like to find out where my real dad lives. I'd like to move in next door without him knowing who I was and I'd like to just become his friend. Once I'd become his friend, then maybe it would be okay for me to move on. The same young man who has had all kinds of difficulty in his life was asked to write an essay on the subject, What is a Man? The following is his brief essay written by a boy who has never really been around a man, never really seen one, but I think there is something so inherent, so ingrained, so intrinsic, so fundamental that even a young boy who has never seen it modeled can put it into words. Here's what he wrote. A real man is kind. A real man is caring. A real man walks away from silly macho fights. 
A real man helps his wife. A real man helps his kids when they're sick. A real man doesn't run from his problems. A real man sticks to his word and keeps his promises. A real man is honest. A real man is not in trouble with the law. Here is one lonely boy's vision of a man who stays, a man who is both in authority and under authority. Jubilee, there will be an evil day for all of us where the enemy of our soul will call us to leave, to quit, to give up, to shrink back, to give up. But our God is calling us to stay, to stand in our commitment, stand in our relationship, stand in the place that God's given us, and most of all, to stand for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that the battle is hard, and, and we recognize that we have a great King who has won the victory. And so we pray, make us a people who looks to Him and lives for Him every day of His life. We say thank You for how You have kept us, and we pray that You would do a great keeping work. Even this morning, I'm thinking about a couple where the fight is particularly heated, and I pray with my brothers and sisters that you would grab hold of every wavering heart and grant a grace to stand. Father, none of us is a superhero. All of us stand needy of the strength that God supplies. And so we pray, grant us each one daily to be strengthened in the Lord and to put on his belt of truth, his breastplate of righteousness, and the readiness given by the gospel. We pray this all in his mighty name. Amen. Jubilee, please stand.